0: Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We are excited to be back again for you today. We have another list of great articles to talk about. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: And I'm Waisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link. First link. link. All right. Our first link comes from Wired by Sirian Kale. And just to kick this off, y'all been giving and getting a lot of hugs right now. I know with the social distancing, it's hard, but how are y'all feeling with your hug quota these days? Yeah, I got five people in my house. I'm fine.
1: <laughs> I don't think I've put two hands on somebody at once uh, since February. Wow,
2: oh, buddy. And you don't have a pet either, right?
1: No, no pet right now.
2: Well, you oh, may no. want to consider it because this article is titled "The Neuroscience of Why You Could Really Use a Hug Right Now," and oh, um, there's—it's <laughs> a phenomenon, it's a neurological phenomenon called skin hunger. Ooh, I know it's kind of salacious and <laughs> and also like you know the idea of your skin being sentient and needing the hunger, but yeah, it's a little creepy. So skin hunger is basically the biological need for human touch. This is why sometimes babies in neonatal intensive care units are placed on their parents' naked chests. It's why prisoners in solitary confinement can often report craving human contact to a great deal. But basically when you touch the skin, it stimulates pressure sensors under the skin that sends messages to the vagus nerve in the brain. And as the vagal activity increases, the nervous system slows down, heart rate and blood pressure decrease, and your brain waves show relaxation. It also releases oxytocin, which is a hormone released during sex and childbirth. And it's also been shown that just stroking a cat or a dog can also release oxytocin, which is really important to kind of feel bonded and calmer and happier and sane.
0: Yeah, I read a thing once that said dogs just on eye contact get a Mm -hmm. dose of oxytocin. Like They don't even have to touch you. Just looking at your eyes and they're like, oh, I'm in love.
2: (laughs) That's right. They're highly evolved to our needs and our hormonal and pheromone levels as they change throughout our different moods and times in our life. But Part of this is because humans are inherently social creatures. And so nature designed this sensory modality, this skin hunger, to increase our feelings of well-being in social environments. And this phenomenon is really only present in social animals that need to be together to optimize their chances of survival, which is kind of a metaphor and message we could probably all get a reminder of right now. <laughs> mm, yeah. We've already been kind of decreasing our human touch if you don't have a romantic partner or a pet or you know family members even like that. But now that we've got social distancing protocols in place, this is the time we really need human touch the most. And not only that, touch is instrumental in immune function because it reduces our cortisol levels. And so cortisol can kill natural killer cells, which is a type of white blood cell that attacks viruses for us. And so human touch has actually been shown to increase natural killer cells in patients with HIV and cancer.
0: See, what I want to know is, have they done any studies on how effective it is for touching yourself? Like if I could give myself a back rub and not have to worry about anybody else, it feels like it would be more efficient.
1: I did just get some houseplants. So I wonder if I can just, you know, pet some leaves for a little bit and see if that does anything. I'll have to get some of those viney plants that like to tangle around things, you know, I think (laughs) that will be my sweet spot.
2: There are some strategies to reduce skin hunger. For example, getting as much exercise as you can, just walking around your room can stimulate the pressure receptors in your feet give yourself a scalp massage, you know, really enjoy being in the shower, rubbing moisturizer into your face. The idea is you just want to move your skin. If you're moving your skin and can get that skin movement feeling, you'll reap some of the benefits or at least stave off the worst of skin hunger. So you should massage yourself. Absolutely. (laughs) If you're moving the skin, it's a pathway to win all i right. don't know if that- <laughs> it sounded real good at the time if it rhymes <laughs> it's true that's right that's right did we learn nothing from the o j simpson trial <laughs> <laughs> all right next link next,
1: next link, link. So this article is from 1843 magazine by Tom Lamont, and it is about escaping from information overload. But really, it's about Sam Winston, a 37-year-old British artist's experience of plunging himself into the darkness for a month straight. So he got blackout curtains, blackout tape. He basically holed up every single source of light he could find. Sensory
2: deprivation, yeah?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because he had been troubled by nervous energy, stress and sort of intermittent insomnia since he was young. And he also found himself increasingly relying on the phone and the computer. So he thought, oh, I'm just going to hold myself up for a few days. No screen, sun or visual stimulation of any kind. So he used about 200 meters of duct tape to cover up every single source of light yeah and the first thing that happened is that he noticed lots of auditory clues like he was able to tell that it was night because of how london's air traffic would stop overnight mm. he could hear the sound of idling vehicles as they took longer to move off traffic lights during rush hour because it was huh. moving slower he swore he could hear the difference between hot and cold liquids as he poured them uh, what? Which kind of blew my mind So he stayed in the dark for about seven days, and when he finally came out, he felt faint, like (gasps) the sun was this overwhelming experience for him, so he just full-on retreated and just (laughs) went back (laughs) into the darkness, Uh, and he decided... I need to get a a gentle transition back into the sun. And so he does some research and, you know, he reintegrates with the help of his girlfriend. And then he just. I can't
0: imagine his girlfriend appreciated this. Like, that seems like a really difficult thing to force her to deal with. Well,
2: he's an artist by trade, right? She knew
0: what she was getting into.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Throughout the article, she's quite tolerant of his experiment. (laughs) Um, And it seems like he's got some friends who are too because they have agreed to, like, check in with him and call him every now and then and and such like that. But so then the article talks about a pioneering experiment on sensory deprivation that had been done at the University of Manitoba in Canada in the 1950s. During that time, hundreds of people were asked to remain alone in a sealed dark room for as long as they could bear. And about a third of the subjects quit within days, and at most they spent two weeks. And that's what led Sam Winston to think, okay, can I try it for a month? And he's really motivated in this entire thing by just the sheer amount of information overload we had uh, or having now. So Mm. a 2011 study found that on an average day, Americans were taking in five times as much information as they had done 25 years earlier. And that was before (laughs) most people had smartphones. Yeah,
0: I believe that, yeah.
1: A 2019 study by academics in Germany, Ireland, and Denmark found that the human attention span is shrinking, most likely because of the digital intrusion that's manifesting itself both online and offline.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like you can't, I mean, there's overlapping activities now. Even starting back in like the 60s and 70s, you were no longer just eating dinner. You were eating dinner and watching TV at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember the last time I did just one thing. You know, yeah. like
1: Sam Winston had his epiphany of wanting to go into the darkness when he realized just how much he enjoyed being hung over after a long <laughs> night out because he was just lolling about on his sofa and he didn't feel like the need to engage with social media or these notifications that were coming at him. So in uh, the summer of 2018. He did his full month in the dark, which was 672 <gasps> hours in seclusion. Oh, wow. And in his typical style, he did not consult a doctor, though no. he did quiz a... <laughs> <Why would you? laughs> yeah, no, of course, you know. Like, if you're going to do this thing, you should go in knowing as little as possible. <laughs> uh, he did quiz a Specsavers employee during a routine appointment who said that she did not know what to tell him. Um <laughs> But so what happened was that he found time slipping almost immediately because, you know, he's fumbling around in the dark. He was secluding himself in a guest house that he rented out for this very purpose. So it was a little more remote. And he realized that he could tell the difference between day and night from the density of traffic noise on the A road that was half a mile away.
0: So I'm assuming he was like writing some of this down. Like, was he like creating art in the dark? What was he doing with all this?
1: Yeah, so he was actually creating these mostly pencil drawings, but he was also recording uh, spoken journals and records of what he was experiencing and thinking and also writing them down. So in one recording, he actually said, I've discovered it doesn't matter which way you walk in the dark, forward or backwards, it makes no difference. Either way, you can't see anything. Quite good walking backwards. They actually did some studies on what happens when your visual senses are gone and uh, the other senses will step up. So in the 1990s and the 2000s, academics actually studied this anecdotal claim that, you know, when you can't see, your other senses get sharper. And they did find that even 30 to 45 minutes after turning off the lights, our fingertips get a lot more sensitive and we get a lot better at determining the direction of a source of sound.
2: Hmm. Well, I've heard about that phenomenon for people who have a sense permanently injured, but to do that temporarily, that seems mm-hmm. both extreme and valuable.
1: Yeah. So in the second week, he experienced a lot of this sort of stuff. He would spend ages running his fingers over common objects and the (laughs) edges of things and surfaces and just feeling what that was like. And he said that when he picked up his pencil, he was sure he could intuit the density of a pencil's lead from its vibrations on paper. But he also had some really weird negative experiences and frustrations sure. like he couldn't sleep on sheets that had been washed in supermarket detergent because he found the fragrance so strong mm-hmm. it made him gag.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm like that normally. That's <laughs> I'm with him.
1: Yeah. I mean, imagine, you know, just like all your senses boosted up. And he was even so convinced that he could track the progress of a processed chips saturated fat down his <laughs> esophagus.
2: Whoa, that's a little bit yeah. too focused on the body there.
0: I mean, yeah. So basically, if you're out of drugs, all you need is 200 meters of duct tape and you can just <laughs> make yourself a little chamber and go to town.
1: Yeah, and then he, so he was starting to eat less. He was exercising less. The article implies he was crying more. Uh,
0: he... <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> it implies he won't admit it, but the author's like, yeah, he was bawling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: he found basic physical activity is too dramatic Too weird and just too intense of an experience. (laughs) And so by the start of the third week, he starts to get straight on daydreams and hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And he describes seeing mostly landscapes, coastlines, the sea. Sometimes his brain would paint in the guest house around him. (laughs) And he describes it afterwards as saying, like, he was going into the dark to escape all these digital bell chimes and bouncing icons and bulletins and infoblasts. But when you go into the dark for a long time, you're not going into a void. You're going into yourself. And good luck finding blissful, empty, quiet there. Yeah, (laughs)
0: yeah. (laughs) it's in short supply.
1: He says, on day 28, just before dusk, his girlfriend helped him out of the guest house, leading him in a blindfold to the garden. Winston was gently hysterical, cackling and clapping... (laughs) kneeling to touch the ground under his feet, stroking the bark of a tree and muttering, who made this?
2: Oh, God. Oh, that's so sweet.
1: And he described having this, like, just sense of innocence, and he felt like when the sun was revealed, he just saw everything anew again, and he took advantage of it to propose to his girlfriend, who said yes. So that's pretty
2: cool. That's very nice of her. That's
1: right. She wasn't
2: tolerant. (laughs) She was patient. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And then uh, the crazy thing that his girlfriend said happened is that his eyes. Actually, changed color from a quote unremarkable blue gray to this deep baby blue. Hmm. And they actually took a picture, posted it, and everyone was like, Holy crap! Yeah. So he came out with the recommendation ultimately that you should not do 672 hours, (laughs) but he does recommend (laughs) trying one or two hours and to just try it and see where your brain takes you.
0: All right. Well, we've all got time on our hands. Maybe we'll give it a shot.
1: Yeah. Now's (laughs) the time, right? All
0: right. Next link.
1: Next Next link. link.
0: So do you guys remember high school? Did you have to read Lord of the Flies? Yes. Yes. And and I'm I'm guessing by your voices, you did not enjoy it. (laughs) I mean, you know. (laughs) I, too, did not enjoy it. But the general assumption of the book has always been, ah, this is, you know, what lurks in the hearts of not just children, but men and humans in general is like left to our own devices. We'll quickly... Resort to savagery and murder and putting a pig's head on a stick and all that. As you do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But so it turns out there actually was an event where six schoolboys were accidentally shipwrecked alone on an island. They were there for 15 months before they were rescued. And it went swimmingly, so to speak. It could not have been more (laughs) uplifting and hopeful to see what they made of that. And at the time that the book came out, it definitely fed into this sort of zeitgeist of the 60s where, like, we were just mm-hmm. out of World War II. A lot of people were sort of asking themselves, was this an anomaly or is this inevitable? Or Do we all have a secret Nazi lurking inside of us? Right. And William Golding, in particular, who wrote the book, he said he was depressed. He was alcoholic. He beat his kids. And he wrote, quote, I have always understood the Nazis because I am of that sort by nature. He said he, oh, wrote, yeah, he said he wrote wow. the dystopian book partly out of that sad self-knowledge. So basically, we've all been looking at this book as like, ah, oh, this is true humanity. It's like, no, this is this one jerk who was a terrible person.
2: <laughs> yes. Where was yeah. that yeah. caveat when we were all assigned the book to read to understand, like, the unreliable narrator or subjectivity of an author? Because that would have been more helpful instead of instilling this mistaken tenet of humanity being at its core inherently right. violent. Right, right
1: rude. <laughs> so how old were these kids that were stranded? They're sixth graders?
2: Well, so at the t- in the book, I think they were sixth
0: graders. In the real life, this group of kids who were actually stranded on an island, it was in uh, 1965. There were six boys between the ages of 13 and 16. And, oh, okay. and in this case, basically, they were at a Catholic boarding school in Tonga, which is a Polynesian sovereign state that at the time had a heavy mix of both diplomats and natives. Mm-hmm. And the boys, basically, they were bored. And they decided that they were going to sort of take a little escape to the nearby island of Fiji. I say nearby. It's like 500 miles away. But they felt like, oh, we'll just (laughs) steal a boat and sail there and it'll be fine. Right. So they only brought two sacks of bananas, a few coconuts, and a small gas burner. They didn't have a map. They didn't have a compass. They really did not think this out very well. Well, they were 13 to 16 year old males. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds
1: about right to me. That sounds
0: about right. So, of course, you know, the very first night they fall asleep. They wake up. They're in the middle of a storm. It destroys their sail. They lose half their supplies. They're completely lost. They drifted for eight days with only rainwater that they could collect in the half of a coconut shell.
2: Oh, my god! And
0: already they were planning. They were taking one sip each in the morning and the night. They were rationing. They understood this is a serious situation. We have to be careful. They finally ran ashore on this rocky island called Atta, which was uninhabited. It used to be inhabited, but then basically the slave trade came, took literally all of the inhabitants of the island, and it had just been abandoned since then. And they, they sort of crashed ashore because it was very rocky. So their boat was done, but they were on land. And immediately, they agreed to work in groups of two. They drew up a strict roster for garden, kitchen, and guard duty. They would occasionally have quarrels, they said, but they would solve them by timeouts where everyone would sort of take a breather. They began and ended every day with song and prayer. And one of the boys named Kolo fashioned a makeshift guitar from a piece of driftwood, half a coconut shell, and six steel wires they salvaged from their wrecked boat.
1: Wow. Uh, I mean, and
0: they they made it. They did a really good job. They tried constructing a raft in order to leave the island, but it fell apart. A boy named Stephen slipped on the cliffs at one point and broke his leg. And the other boys climbed all the way down, carried him back up, set his leg with sticks and leaves. And later, much later after they were rescued, a doctor examined it and said it had healed perfectly. There was absolutely nothing they could have done better.
1: Wow.
2: So they, I mean, yeah. these
1: kids did better than most adults would in right. that situation. Absolutely. Holy crap.
2: They did we, fantastic. Yeah, it, it totally overturns Lord of the Rings in that regard. That's amazing. Lord of the Flies.
1: <laughs> 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 but also Lord That's of the Rings. Right, probably that too.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've been reading a lot of fantasy novels. That's right.
0: <laughs> so eventually they were rescued. Uh, ship captain Peter Warner was sort of drifting by, and he has kind of his own backstory in the article, which is pretty interesting of like he was an accountant, but really he wanted to be a seafaring captain and you know he was on this sort of joy ride on this boat floating around and as he came around the corner of the island he saw this naked boy with hair down past his shoulders come running and screaming off the edge of the cliff dove in and started swimming for his boat and then another five, like, just ah, come running and jumping up. <laughs> and they all swim all the way to the boat. Like, not, they didn't even hesitate. They were super strong at this point. The boy got on and he said in perfect English, my name is Steven. There are six of us and we reckon we've been here 15 months. Oh,
2: my gosh. So the ship captain was wow. a little shocked.
0: He was thinking <laughs> that it was all a prank. Like he was not believing any of it at this point. He thought, oh, OK, there's like a, a you know, a settlement in a school or whatever on the other side of the island. And this is how they get their rocks off by tricky <laughs> ship captains. And just so, around
1: the corner is a crank camera or something. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so he radioed into the island to basically said, yeah, I got these six boys. They say that they're school kids and they've been here 15 months. And they said, yeah, uh, hold, please. And 20 minutes later, they came back and they were just shouting and crying. They said, oh, my God, you found them. You found them. We've had funerals. We thought these boys were dead. Like we just that was it. Wow. So some of the other things he reported finding that Peter Warner actually took a little tour of their campsite before going taking them back home. He found a food garden, hollowed out tree (gasps) trunks to catch and store rainwater, a gymnasium with curious weights, a badminton court, chicken pens and a permanent fire. They figured it out. They had built an entire colony there. They were doing just fine. And actually, upon their return, the very first thing that happened was they were arrested and thrown in jail because (gasps) the fisherman whose boat they had stolen 15 months ago was still very angry. And uh, he
1: wanted. Oh,
0: come on. I guy. know he was. That's why they stole the boat from him. Actually, they said he was a mean guy and we didn't like him. So that's why we stole his boat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and...
0: But uh, so they it was sort of a little unsure. You know, obviously, their families were very happy to see them. But it's like they'd made yeah. peace with the death of these sons over a year ago. And now all of a sudden they were magically back. And uh, fortunately, the, the ship captain was very savvy. And so he sold the rights to the boy story for a movie. He used the money to pay off the fishermen for his boat. He also paid nice. the boys bail as long as they cooperated with the movie. And they actually made a movie. I don't. They didn't say what the name of it was or anything, but presumably it's out there and you can see a movie about these boys' story. And then after all of that, going back to school seemed just pretty unlikely for these boys who had been on their <laughs> own and doing just fine. So the ship captain, Peter Warner, hired all six of them as his crew for his next expedition.
2: Wow. So, oh yeah. my gosh.
0: Wow. And, you know, it's hard to imagine, like, you got to wonder how much of that was just the luck of these boys' personality. Like, I've seen studies where they're like, one good leader can absolutely bring together a very large team of people. But also, a one bad apple can also really take a whole group down. So I can imagine other situations where maybe it wouldn't work as well. But certainly, these guys proved it's
2: possible. Was there kind of a leader that emerged from this group that was noted at all in this article to kind of indicate that may have been at play?
0: They didn't really say so. The primary two people they were interviewing were Peter Warner and one of the boys named Mono. Because mm-hmm. this, you know, it happened back in the 60s. A lot of them have passed away by now. The ship captain is yeah. actually in his 90s. Oh, wow. But this is all part of a book that the guy is writing about the idea of what do we think human nature is versus what does the evidence mm-hmm. show us that human nature is. And so, quite possibly, there is more to the story in his book. I don't know. But
2: it uh, sounds like a good read and something to possibly pivot into a nice counterpart to. Lord of the Flies in terms of a literary kind of benchmark, because this is the supportive, cooperative masculinity story we need right now. Well, and you got to think, I mean, if human nature really was like Lord of the Flies, we never would have
0: survived at all. I mean, the very fact that we're here in a society proves that that can't be the underlying nature of us. So, yeah, I mean,
1: the place we came from is exactly these sorts of scenarios many, many times, although I am curious about one thing, Mm -hmm. which is they said they had a gym with curious weights. Did they elaborate on what that means? (laughs)
0: They did not.
2: That's what I was really. Uh, And I'm just like a badminton court. Like, what do you what are you using? uh, How do you first of all, fabricate a racket? Are you using cat gut to string it? Were there cats on the? I look, yeah, like I no. need some more details there, here. There
0: were wild chickens. They noted that they said at some point they eventually climbed to the top and found the remains of an old settlement from like <gasps> decades earlier where they had bananas, wild taro root and wild chickens where the chickens had been domesticated and then gone feral when all the people left. And so they had lots of chickens and they were able to pen them in and catch them and use them for food. So it seems like food was the one thing they didn't lack in. But everything else... I mean, collecting water alone, that right there is yeah. something that'll kill mm-hmm. you very quickly if you don't find a solution. Oh, good so, boys. So the moral of the story is, uh, Willem Golding's a jerk, and uh, yep. don't don't <laughs> listen to anything he says. <laughs> no,
2: I, I feel like that needs to be a bit more widespread as context to couch any assignment or reading of that book from here on out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We'll make it our mission to tell all the high school students. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: all right, next link?
1: Next, next link!
2: link. Our next link comes from Crime Reads. Ooh. Ooh. This is by Kylie Logan and it's titled How Dogs Became Detectives. Like sniffing. Like I'm not like Ruff McGruff, but like
1: <laughs> <laughs> Exactly
2: sniffing. And in particular, this article looks at cadaver dogs. So basically, Ooh. there are often dogs that are sent out for rescue missions, right? To find mm-hmm. survivors of natural disasters, earthquakes, et cetera, to see who's still living and kind of pull them out to rescue. But sometimes they also have to look for dead people, which is a little sad to think about. But when you hear about how they train these puppers to look for them, it's super cute. <laughs> it's adorable <laughs> dead bodies. It kind, I mean, you know, the, the finding is adorable. The bodies. Right. But basically what happens is these trainers use these tennis balls that are stored in a case that holds a certain kind of bait, preferably human blood, (laughs) decaying flesh, or bones. But the article notes these are sometimes hard to come by. So there are commercially available substitutes that provide the proper scent. So (laughs) you play with the dog with the ball, and it gets that serotonin dopamine burst of like, yay, I caught the ball, good boy. And they learn to associate the smell of decomposition with the toy. And this training, this playing has to happen over a variety of environments. So you have to do it in both urban and rural settings. Day and night, rain and shine, because decomposition as a scent can differ depending on these conditions. Like if somebody dies in arid conditions, it'll smell differently than a death in a human place. And so the dog has to learn the differences as well as be able to distinguish the scent of dead animals from that of a dead human. Hmm. Wow. But it's highly effective. Uh, for example, in 1999, a dive team in Canada spent 12 days looking for the body of a missing boater. A cadaver dog aboard a boat found the man in 15 minutes. Underwater?
1: Wow.
2: Wow. Yeah. Well, what they can do too is they're also trained to smell gases that can come up oh, from like bodies up. of water. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's another kind of like part of the scent training they have to do. But they're able to do it. Wow. Um, in Pennsylvania, dogs searched a 90-acre property and located located the remains of four missing men even though they were buried 12 and a half feet in the ground. Whoa. Wow.
1: Right?
2: Yeah, and they're they're using these cadaver dogs to in archaeological sites now. So like revolutionary war cemeteries or Roman hill forts. I mean, you'd have to assume that the scent of decomposition is incredibly faint, but if there's even a trace of it, I mean, we all know that dogs can smell sure uh, 100,000 times better than humans can. Yeah. What's great, too, is that it's not a particular breed of dog that can be trained as a cadaver dog. They really look for drive, intelligence, and ability because they have to be smart enough to make decisions and work on their own, but they also have to be loyal to their handlers and to obey commands.
1: I feel like I'm listening to like a, a job requirements listing right now. That's right.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: Do they get paid?
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, the trainers probably do. And they probably have earned whatever amount of money they can actually get from this because it's pretty grim work for a human, even though you're convincing the dog. No, this is just fun. It's a game. You're a good boy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be the dog trainer at a cocktail party or something like that. <laughs> and describing what you do.
2: I train dogs and we solve self- mysteries that's right there's a way to spin this into something sexy for sure (laughs) (laughs) it's weird because my my husband actually had almost that exact
0: conversation with somebody at a party once where the guy was with fema for disaster sites where they're saying like oh somebody's buried this is actually a super bummer i don't even know if we (laughs) should talk about this but it basically the guy had been dispatched during 9-11 to go search the rubble with his dogs and he said actually the dogs are very smart they understand what they're doing And they get rewarded when they find somebody either way, but obviously they're smart enough to pick up on the fact that when you find a person alive, That's much better. Yeah. Right? Everybody's cheering. It's like you're pulling somebody out. And he said that the dogs actually were getting depressed because they were not finding enough people alive. And they said that they actually had a couple of volunteers go and like sort of half bury themselves so that they could be found so the dogs could get a boost of like, yes, I found something. Like I did a good job and everything's okay. And so, super bummer. I didn't mean to, you know, drag everybody down. Not (laughs) not a bummer.
2: I mean, you know, it's just like we need to support the mental health of everybody in the healthcare industry right now because they're dealing with basically what those dogs during 9-11 were dealing with. And you need to have a little bit of a boost to keep going because it's critical for the situations that they're in, but it's an individual personality and mood thing that can also factor in. Right. And these dogs aren't just, you know, machines. They're actual creatures no, that have, have you know, good
0: an emotional awareness. So yes. it's, it's we're lucky we have them to be able to uh, do the dirty work of sniffing stuff we can't smell. Yeah,
1: Amen. Hallelujah.
2: <laughs> Next link.
1: Next, Next link. link. So, this one comes from the Columbia Journalism Review, and it's called Inside the Black Vault uh, by Sean Raviv. Ooh. And the Black Vault is actually a reference to a website. That was founded by John Greenwald, and what he does is he will take records that are returned from FOIA requests or Freedom of Information Act requests, wherein Mm -hmm. you can petition the government and say, hey, I think you have these documents. If they're not classified, please release them because we'd like to read them. So he does this and publishes them all onto the Black Vault website, and it has about 300,000 unique visitors per month who collectively download about 10 terabytes worth of documents.
0: Dang. So is he filing his own requests, or he's just saying someone else asked for this, someone thinks it's interesting, I'll put it on my site He
1: mostly files them himself. There's a bit of an origin story here where he was a 16-year-old kid reading a report from Tehran province from September 1970 and i'm just going to read this because it's a little fun ufo story four civilians saw a strange object hovering in the sky one evening after midnight so the iranian royal command sent an f4 jet to investigate the object's visual size was difficult to discern because of its intense brilliance when the fighter pilot got close to the object his instrumentation and communications equipment failed until he retreated at which point it started working again And then a smaller object came out of the original object and headed at great speed toward another F4 that it had come to observe as well. Until that small object then returned to the mothership and then headed toward a small house with a garden and then disappeared. They couldn't find it after that. Hmm. Although the people who were in the house did report hearing a, a loud sound like lightning and a flash of light. And so Greenwald, being the 16-year-old kid, couldn't believe what he was reading, and he also couldn't believe that it was a real document that actually came out of the U.S. government. Right. So he decides that, okay, I'm actually going to request these files because he just found out about FOIA requests. And in two weeks, Mm -hmm. he gets a response. Wow. Yeah. So he realizes like, hey, you know, who knows about this UFO? That wasn't necessarily real. But this is certainly a real document that is really reporting on this thing that happened.
0: Right. That they didn't understand at the time. And that's what they wrote down. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Right. So as a teenager with tons of time, he figures, you know, why not request more? And so after getting a hang of the process... He decides there should be a site for this. There should be some sort of repository for all of these government documents. And so he's been essentially been hooked on the process of filing FOIA requests and publishing them ever since.
0: Mm. And I mean, I guess does the site have advertising or does he have to have a day job? Yeah, so it actually does,
1: he does have a day job. It does not make money. As he puts it, uh, okay. there's no money to be made by giving info out for free. But he has written books about some of the contents, and he's actually considered a bit of a folk hero by the UFO community, also the conspiracy community, to barely cover the website's hosting costs, because, you know, 10 terabytes of downloads per month is a huge bill.
2: that's enormous.
1: Yeah. So he does it with the Patreon, Google, and YouTube ads, and some t-shirts and a couple books that he's written, and occasional, I guess, appearances for TV shows and whatnot. What is interesting about John Greenwald is that he is actually pretty nonpartisan himself. He considers himself to be a patriot, and so he really does not compare himself to Assange or Snowden at all, because he believes that they are not heroes because they leak information in a way that is non-patriotic. So he follows due process Also, he is extremely patient because this is kind of a side thing for him. He doesn't really have an axe to Mm -hmm. grind, so he's perfectly fine. Just wait as long as it takes, even though FOIA requests have been getting longer and longer and longer to process. I was going to say, when you
0: said two weeks, I was like, I've actually filed one before, not for alien-related stuff, just completely unrelated (laughs) for research. And it was way longer than two weeks before they even got back to me of like, we've received this, we'll let you know. Like, it's a really long process Yeah,
1: absolutely. So he's saying that actually from uh, when he first started, the average was about two months. And now the longest period he's ever had to wait has actually been 13 years. Whoa, holy cow. So for him, he doesn't really mind how long it takes to wait. He's incredibly patient because in his view, the moment he receives this thing that took, you know, possibly more than a decade to get processed and returned, he just immediately turns around and publishes it on the internet for free for everyone to download.
0: Which, you know, if the government were thinking intelligently about it, they would recognize that this guy's going to keep filing. And as soon as it's filed for, no one else will ever file for it again because it's already out there. They should just hand it over to him preemptively Just say, look, here, put it on your website and stop bothering us. And (laughs) and it would save everybody so much time. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But (laughs) the government is not incentivized to do that because, you know, know. they... (laughs) You yeah, really. <laughs> they want to hide some of this stuff. Huh. Like, for instance, one of the biggest scores for the Black Vault is actually the data on MK Ultra, Ooh. which is a top secret CIA project that involved. Dozens, and I'm just reading quotes here dozens of mind control experiments on US citizens and others, including interesting code names like Project Artichoke and Bluebird, which explored whether the CIA could control human behavior with the use of hypnosis or hallucinogens such as LSD and peyote. Yeah, so yep. there's a report investigating whether people who have been hypnotized score differently on polygraph tests, another on the development of natural and synthetic toxins to incapacitate and immobilize an enemy a memo on the potential Mm -hmm. of using wildlife telemetry in an intelligence gathering capacity, which I guess means like spy birds or something.
2: We're still using
0: that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some of these things sound like
2: they're actually in practice now. Well, that's the point of research, right? Is you figure out what can actually be effective (laughs) and then just that gets put
0: into practice. And then your spy birds are out into the world.
1: Yeah, and so (laughs) (laughs) so the Black Vault actually plays a really essential piece for journalistic work and often contains documents that have unexpected value where something like what we're talking about might seem frivolous when it's first released and then really becomes super important in six months to a year. Just over the past Mm -hmm. few months from when this article was published, its materials have been cited in stories in The Intercept, Wired, Newsweek, Business Insider, USA Today, Popular Mechanics, Vice, and The Washington Post. Hmm. Greenwald actually does more than just file FOIA requests himself and publish the results. He'll even go f- as far as to press agencies for answers, such as when he recently got the U.S. Navy to admit on the record that their advanced aerospace threat identification program videos that were recently released did actually depict UFOs. Where before they were kind of like hemming and hawing, and they're like, "Well, it's a thing in the sky, and we don't know what it is exactly." We're not tell. Yeah, <laughs>
0: maybe it's ours, maybe it's China's. We yeah, don't really
1: hard know. to tell. <laughs> um, but occasionally, the Black Vault does get wrapped up in conspiracies. Naturally, like when Greenwald appeared mm-hmm. on InfoWars to talk about the MKUltra stuff and talking about modern attempts by the military to allow soldiers to control robots with their brains. Not as far-fetched as it sounds, honestly. No. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, right. also when he hosted Jordan Sather, who's a, a more right-wing YouTube star, to discuss QAnon, which is a conspiracy theory that Sather espouses mm-hmm. about, I don't know the deep details, but essentially about Trump and secret state actors and stuff like that.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. But
1: um, yeah, so Greenwald considers himself a patriot overall and will not publish any leaked info that he can't verify or is actually classified and he does do a lot of work as well to push back against conspiracy theories that he believes are just conspiracies but is not afraid to get into the middle of things when it comes to Mm. topics that he thinks the government should be talking about and is trying to obscure
0: yeah i feel like Mm. all of this is just like a slow warm-up for when they admit oh yeah there's definitely aliens like we're just we're just <laughs> acclimating you slowly with little bits of information we'll let this black vault guy do his thing we'll occasionally right. okay you made us admit it there's some aliens in this video and then at some point <laughs> we're all going to be so jaded that they're going to be like, oh yeah, by the way, this is true. And you'd be like, yeah, we yeah, know. Like, it it won't <laughs> it won't have such a uh, devastating societal impact if they've already just filled our minds with what could be Yeah, real.
1: absolutely. I mean, actually, this news has come out recently, like actually about a year or two ago when uh, lots of crazy Trump news was happening in the New York right. Times. <laughs> the New York Times also published two front page articles and videos containing military aircraft video footage of what they considered UFOs, including these fighter pilots being like, "Uh, what the heck is that, Dave? I don't know, Bob. (laughs) Like (laughs) this entire exchange happened in the New York Times as a front page article. Just it got buried by everything else because uh, we had Mm -hmm. other stuff on our minds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It'll happen. They're just they're just waiting for the right moment. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, I have a quick one here right at the end. Uh, I think the title of it really says it all. ESA wants to make moon bases out of astronaut pee. Wow. This is, <laughs> this is uh, from Mike Wayner at BGR.com. ESA, of course, is the European Space Agency, their answer to NASA. And what it boils down to is it's a, a little less shocking. That's slightly clickbaity, but not really. The moon is covered with a soft dirt known as regolith. And it's a particular you know, mixture of minerals that you don't really find much of on Earth. And it just happens, they have discovered, who knows how they first discovered this. I know, you know, they bring moon rocks back, they bring samples back, and they run experiments. But it still seems a bit of a stretch for someone to have said, I wonder what happens if you pee on it. But uh, (laughs) somebody did, and they have discovered that it happens to form this sort of concrete when mixed with the right amount of urea, which is a main chemical in urine. So you're not strictly just peeing on it. You're sort of extracting urea, which actually you can buy commercially they use urea for a lot of different things you mix it in the right quantities and you get this lunar concrete which is apparently very very strong it actually is perfectly strong enough to build buildings out of and the key of it of course is that You would not have to bring the building materials up to the moon for some potential lunar base that you were trying Mm, to build. Nice. You just, you know, bring your astronauts, bring a thing that can process Mm -hmm. the urea out of their urine, which really they're going to be doing anyway because they have to refilter all the water. And then you mix the urea with the dirt that's everywhere and you've got your building materials ready to go. And so for right now, (laughs) they're only testing suitability, right? They're basically like, you know, we're a long, long way from building a moon base, but we got a really good idea once we get up there.
1: To make a bunch of buildings out of pee. Wow. So it does make me imagine sort of hypothetical scenarios where, after we've terraformed the moon and put oxygen up there, what kind of hijinks, you know, just like high schoolers get into (laughs) with the land and, you know, being high schoolers and. The mind boggles.
2: You know, we clearly need to get like six boys, aged thirteen to sixteen, <laughs> All right, to them go there. out and exactly <laughs> let them sort it out because they've got this under control. Maybe a few hijinks, but you know yeah, what? Fifteen minor months up. later, right. they'd like
1: set up a hospital up there and civilization. That's right. and a exactly.
2: And... exactly. <laughs> exactly. Badminton on
0: the moon is be they found Why chickens not? somehow.
1: We don't know where, but that's
0: right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. If you'd like to support our podcast and keep us going, you can go to patreon.com slash week. Of course, there are plenty more articles that we didn't get to today. Some of those articles include, are we seeing a new ocean starting to form in Africa? How long was Venus habitable? And how Harry Houdini became the champion of Mother's Day. So, a little late, but still timely. All those and more can be found on damninteresting.com. Please come back next week. We hope to see you again. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: And I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.